Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today I am going to be sharing with you some thoughts on First and Second Peter, which, if you have been following along on the podcast, are the books of the Bible that I just read. And of course, when we say First and Second Peter, we are referring to what are letters from Peter. We have two of them, so we call them the first letter and the second letter. One of the things I noticed as I was reading through these two letters is just how many verses are in here that are just taken out and quoted individually. And while I believe that there can sometimes be some value in just quoting a single verse, its value is still very much bound up in the idea that everybody knows the context and the overall message that is represented by that verse. Let me give an illustration. I know a variety of people who have been interviewed and or quoted in print, audio, or video, and many times they are very distressed by the end result that comes out and how they hear themselves presented after the editing has taken place. The people who have edited or produced whatever uh, they wanted to from these people's words, they cut their words short or they splice, and at the very least, they reduce their thoughts to trite phrases that really lack any context or background on which to judge what is being said. And this may be laziness or it may be lack of understanding, but many times this is really because the interviewer or the producer already knew what they wanted to say, and so they were quite ready to use any quotes they wanted to create their factual news. They didn't really care what the person was trying to say. They had decided, what they would hear when the person was talking and how they would pass it on. I have even heard of more than one extreme case where a person who was being interviewed was referring to something they totally disagreed with. And so they had to say a whole phrase or sentence about that, about what they disagreed with. And then the person who was interviewing used just that sentence to completely misrepresent them. Too many people do this with Bible verses, either ignorantly or out of maliciousness or not wanting to listen to what the Bible has to say. And we refer to this as taking the verses out of context. And it really is crucial that we take this idea to heart. So with these thoughts in mind, I would like to talk about three important examples of the danger of taking verses out of context that occur in both the first and second letters of Peter. The first concept I'm going to talk about is represented in the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 10, that talks about making your calling and election sure. The second concept is represented in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, which talks about wives being in subjection. And the third concept is represented in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that talks about one day being as a thousand years to God. And let me just say right at the outset that I think some of the misunderstanding comes from not realizing how Peter in his letters is actually weaving all of these ideas together. 
So let me talk a little bit more in depth about each of these concepts. Let's begin with making your calling and election sure. I think one concise way to just present it at the beginning is this verse is referring to the exact same things that James is referring to, that faith without works is dead. Let's go back through some other passages in Peter that build on this idea so that we can see what he's doing with this idea overall. Right at the very beginning of his first letter in chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about the chosen ones who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, I know that there are whole books written about this idea of chosen ones or election and the foreknowledge of God. But what I want to highlight right here is that there is a a finality in the statement, a surety in this statement. It is done. They are chosen ones according to God's foreknowledge. Regarding the idea of election and what that means biblically, I'm just going to say a couple of things. One is the Old Testament example that God chose Israel, but he actually asked them to choose him in response. And that even the verse in 1 Peter 1, when it talks about chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, it seems to be alluding to the fact that throughout the Bible and the New Testament also, that we are held responsible for our choice in responding to his invitation or his call. But let's get back more to the question I think that comes to some people's mind when we talk about being sure of our election. I'm going to go through several verses in both First and Second Peter that give a sense of surety of our place in God. Let's begin with verse 5 of First Peter chapter 1. And this is mid-sentence, but I think you can go back and read it and see exactly what it means. It says, who by the power of God are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then if we move on to verse 7, it alludes to that very thing in James that I was talking about. It says, that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, we have here the idea that there is proof of our faith. Going down to verse 18, it says, knowing that you were redeemed. Verse 22 says, seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth through the Spirit. Now we move on to chapter 2, and in verse 2 it says, As newborn babies, longing for the pure milk of the word, that with it you may grow, and then verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And the idea here is that these things will happen if you know the Lord. Then in verse 9 of chapter 2, we have the well-known section that says, but you are a chosen race. In the second letter in chapter 1, verse 3, he carries on this theme saying, seeing that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that's where he goes on to list all of the things that are a result of having been granted this divine power. In verse 10, he says, therefore, brothers, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure. And then if you continue down into verse 12, it says, Therefore, I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. So I think you get a very clear picture that he's not talking about the fact that they're working for this, but that they can see 
evidence of this and they know the truth, but he's still encouraging him them. Now, what he does say in the second part of verse 10 is, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Well, we know that we do all stumble, but then again, it goes back to the idea of growing in God and stumbling is not the same thing as abandoning faith or God letting us slip through his fingers. Along these same lines, we can go on to chapter 2, verse 9, where it says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, the other part of this letter in chapter 2 that might seem to obscure what he's saying here in verse 20, he says, he's talking about false teachers, and he says, For if after they have escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in it and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. I think here we can compare this to the parable of sowing of the seeds and the idea that the truth has very clearly been presented to them. They have openly acknowledged the truth. They have even made um, taken action like they are taking part in the church, but they are not really part of it in their hearts. So to end with this particular segment, we go to Second Peter chapter 3, where he is also winding up all of these thoughts. And in verse 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, seeing that you look for these things, be diligent to be found in peace without defect and blameless in his sight. And we'll get back to this verse again in one of the other concepts, but the idea of encouraging them to be diligent, to be found in peace. So even we are given God's power to do these things. And it's a, a mutual effort by his power. We do it by the grace of God, but we are called to do it. That is one of the mysteries of this Christian life. Then in verse 17 of the same chapter, where he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing these things beforehand, beware, lest being carried away with the error of the wicked, you fall from your own steadfastness. I don't think that in light of everything else that he's written, he's talking about falling away from the faith. He's talking about stumbling right there, and he's giving all the encouragement he can to help people to live in a godly way that is good for them, that will find them ultimate satisfaction and joy and hope and peace. So let's go on to the second concept, that of wives being in subjection to their husbands. But in order to do that, we really have to begin with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, where he's starting this whole particular section with the idea that we are living as foreigners and pilgrims here on this earth right now. And not only that, but with an eternal perspective. The premise being that those who are not believing will see the good works and God will be glorified, and hopefully many of them will come to know him. So he starts with the idea of subjecting ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, and the list he gives makes it clear he's talking about humans governing humans, but he also says, for this is the will of God that by well-doing you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he is very specifically talking here about obeying good laws, laws that help people get along in the community, having to do with things like just weights and not murdering. 
Then we come to his admonition to servants, which I believe is sometimes translated as slaves. And I will inject right here that I'm actually going to do a whole discussion about slavery in the Bible. Um, it's a pretty big topic, and so I'll get to that more later. But even uh, without getting into that more, you can see that he's talking about having a good attitude. And you could go to Colossians 3.23, where it says, whatever you do, work with all your heart as for the Lord, not for men. And he gets a bit into the uncomfortable subject that we are called for some suffering because Christ also suffered for us and that through our suffering, we also are an example. I wanted to take a, a little side note here. I've heard some people talk or complain about the idea that even being employed or having to work for a living is slavery. Now, on one hand, this being employed is obviously not anything like being kidnapped, kept in chains and beaten and hardly being fed anything. But on the other hand, biblically, they're not that totally off base. And here's why I think they're actually onto something and don't even know it. I think what they are fighting against in their minds is based on the idea that we are in a fallen world. And in a sense, we are held bound by its requirements. We must all toil for our existence. This is not a choice. And or we must oppress somebody else to toil from us in some way. But we are all bound also by impending physical death and certain things that will happen to us if we don't do certain things. So I think their protestations are, probably unbeknownst to them, a reflection of their recognition of being slaves to the fallen nature of this world. And they are straining against reality, and they're trying to make political things that try to break them free of this reality, but they do have a sense of this reality. So next we get to the verse in chapter 3, verse 1, that says that wives should be in subjection to their husbands. Now, right off, you should pay attention to why this is supposed to be. They're supposed to be a godly attitude, and they are supposed to be a witness to their husbands so that they would believe. And this all is all put in the context that the world is a temporary place, and it is more important to do things to show God's love and patience than to, quote, stand up for our rights, end quote, in ways that are violent and or arrogant and or destroy relationships where we're pitting one person against another. There is something very godly about having a gentle, quiet spirit. And I'll say it now and I'll say it again. This is not about being weak. This is about having the strength and the trust in God to act this way with things in perspective. But Let's talk a moment about husbands in verse 7. They are to give wives honor. How do you compare the two words honor and subjection? I think one way to do it is to compare what the worldly tendencies are in relationships without God, and that each a wife is told to be in subjection and a husband is told to honor because of the natural fallen nature's tendency to do just the opposite in those relationships, according to the curse in Genesis. But also, I think it's important to realize that they both involve humility and treating the other person with a preference that leads to understanding and growth of relationships. Then when you get to verse 8, it sums it all up. It says, finally, all of you be like-minded, compassionate, loving as brothers, which is gender inclusive for those of you who don't understand. Be tender-hearted, courteous, not rendering evil for evil or insult for insult. 
instead, but instead blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Then let's move on to chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, Therefore, let them also who suffer according to the will of God in doing good entrust their souls to him as to a faithful creator. So there's a point here at which you say, do you fight against all of these injunctions about how we should treat one another? Or do you trust God that he really knows what will help everybody in the long run? And it goes even farther in chapter five, talking about the elders of the Christian communities who are to serve, not lording it over. And then in verse five, everyone is subject yourselves one to another. And verse six, humble yourselves. So I'm beginning to see a theme here. Again, this is not about being weak in spirit or even in voice, because you can talk about things. This is about attitude and relationship and perspective. And it really all comes down to the third concept, which starts in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then in verse 4, to an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that doesn't fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. Then there's the very curious part in verse 12 that says, which things angels desire to look into. This is all about a bigger picture that includes angels. In verse 20, it talks about these things which have been revealed in the last age for our sake. And then when you get to verse 25, he is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, when he talks about the word, the Lord's word endures forever. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, he talks about God having waited patiently in the days of Noah. In verse 7 of chapter 4, he uses the phrase, but the end of all things is near. And I'll admit to you that I don't know exactly that what that means, is near. But the point with referencing this verse is that he is again referring to the overall picture of what God has planned. And he has some things in mind, and he's going to carry them out. And we have reason to act in ways that reflect that and hope in that. And in verse 11, along the same theme, because... Uh, Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the, the dominion forever and ever. And then in verse 13, it says, But because you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice that at the revelation of his glory, you also may rejoice with exceeding joy. Do you see how all of these themes are connected in his letters? These are not just random verses. In chapter 5, Verse 4, it talks about when the chief shepherd is revealed, you will receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. Then in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about his precious and exceedingly great promises to us. And in verse 14, he talks about the fact that he knows he is going to die soon. He refers to his body as a tent. And then he gets to something that concerns him, and that is that there will be false teachers who will rise up and who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. He describes them and their impending destruction in some pretty severe ways. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, he talks about there being mockers in the last days as well. And what these people are mocking is that God hasn't come yet. He hasn't fulfilled all of the promises yet. And that's why he says in verse 8, But don't forget this one thing, beloved, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. 
The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient with us, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think what you have here is not only the idea that God is being very patient, but that he is outside of time. And these verses don't have any bearing on other places where God is very specifically referring to days. For instance, in Genesis, in the creation account, he very specifically gives a number for the day. He says there's a morning and an evening. And then when he's later telling the Israelites about having a week of six days of work and one day of rest, he says, because he worked in six days and rested one day. So he is obviously referring to time that he has created there and as they are experiencing it. A good resource for understanding these things is Answers in Genesis, but I will just add one more comment and that reading the creation story as actual days is the most straightforward and non-tortured way of viewing the scripture, and I can't see any reason to try and fit man's wisdom into the scripture when it is shown over and over again that things people know change with time and are often quite distorted by what they want to know and want to say. So in summary, Peter is weaving these three themes together for encouragement in doing what is good and having hope in the clear promises that God has given us and in love for others. These letters are not separate little lists of regulations, but rather they are a guide for living according to truth and knowing that we are living according to truth. Um, They are supposed to help us lead others to choose God by our behavior. They are supposed to help us through trials and tribulations and give us perspectives that give us strength and encouragement. And they continually emphasize the love and patience and plan of God. So thank you for letting me share my thoughts on 1st and 2nd Peter. I will be continuing to read through the Psalms in the evening posts of the podcast episode, and I will get to another book of the Bible soon, but I might have to do the segment on slavery first. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey.